And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? But he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have, them for, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called to gather the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in a homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Cole. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are in our second week back here at uh, Lake Country Lutheran, and we are still excited. It's still great to be able to be here in the mornings. Grateful to see all of you as well. My name is Dave Hahn, if uh, you do not know me, and it is my privilege today to be able to open God's Word with and for you. If you have never seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you should. I am personally fascinated with the subject matter, of course, but as an artist, I was and am also incredibly struck by the artistic decisions that Mel Gibson made in the movie. Decisions to let me know that this film may have been in many ways an act of worship for him. And here's what I mean by that. There is a close-up shot in the movie where the hand of a Roman soldier takes a big spike and places it on the palm of Jesus' hand. And then another hand comes up in slow motion and begins driving that spike into Christ's palms over and over and over again. As the director of the film, Mel Gibson decided that the hand that would hold and drive the nails into Jesus' hands would be his. So the hand that you see holding the spike and the hand that you see swinging the hammer is his. It is his hand that you see crucifying Christ. And Gibson of course, was asked about this decision, and he answered this way, I am first in line for culpability. It was me that put him on the cross. It was my sins. Throughout 
Mark's gospel, we have seen a cast of characters who we could very well blame for Christ's betrayal and for his abandonment, for the plotting of his death, for the sham of a trial and each false accusation, for every punch thrown, for every thorn on his brow and every scourge on his body. Maybe Judas was most to blame, or maybe it was the chief priest, or Herod, or Pilate, or the Roman soldiers, or the Jewish people who called for his crucifixion. Or maybe it is not quite that simple. Maybe the answer to who killed Jesus is bigger than any one person. For whatever one thinks of Mel Gibson, his understanding of the gospel as demonstrated by this filmmaking decision is an understanding that everyone who believes in Jesus must come to. And the understanding is this. You and I are the real reason Christ was born to die. You and I are the real reason that Christ was born to die. In essence, it was our hands that threw the punches and swung the whip and drove the nails. It was our mouths that shouted crucify him, that mocked him and spat upon his face. You and I did these things in that our sin made it necessary. So in today's passage, while it appears as though Jesus was being judged by the Sanhedrin, by Pilate, by the crowds, in reality, it was and is all those who ever have and who ever will stand in judgment and contempt of Jesus who are truly judged and condemned. Judged for what we have done and what we have left undone regarding God's Son and condemned because of our rejection of Him. And Pilate's question for the crowds is a question for you and me as well, putting us all before the judgment seat of God. And the question that you and I and everybody else that has ever born and ever will be born needs to answer is this, what shall I do with the man called King of the Jews? Then what shall I do with the man called King of the Jews? Beginning in verse 1 of today's passage, we read, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. As we've discussed, specifically last week, the mock trial of the Sanhedrin was a sham in that it was done at night, it was devoid of corroborating witnesses, and it was held during a festival. None of those things could or should have happened. But the Sanhedrin, who desperately wanted Jesus dead, knew three things. First, they had no authority of their own to execute Jesus. 
Second, only Rome could do so legally. And third, legal Roman trials were held shortly after sunrise. It was the first business of the day. So with time being of the essence, they handed Jesus over to Pilate in the early morning. Now Pilate, as most of you know, was the governor of Judea, sent to this particular province by Emperor Tiberius Caesar. And history tells us that Pilate in particular was a cruel and somewhat immoral ruler. And as such, the Sanhedrin would have all kinds of confidence and good reason to believe that he would be willing to do their bidding. But history tells us also that Pilate didn't really like or trust the Jews. And he would likely have been suspicious of the religious leaders bringing him a prisoner. In fact, in verse 10 of today's passage, we see that Pilate saw the motivation of the religious leaders as envy. He understood what was driving all of this. And so his suspicions proved to be correct. And we see that in his questioning of Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, based on Pilate's question, we know of at least one accusation made against Jesus, though we know in throughout this scripture that there were many accusations made. Do you remember the question that Jesus was asked during the evening trial, the trial of the night before? The Sanhedrin asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And do you remember how Jesus responded? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus admitted to being the Son of Man and the Christ, though he was and is the King of Kings as well. But the Sanhedrin was not concerned with his claims of kingship. But Pilate would have been. Pilate would have been concerned about that. The Sanhedrin, rather, was only concerned for their own place and for their own power. And they knew that Jesus threatened both. Jesus threatened their place and he threatened their power. If we let him continue to do these things, everyone will follow him, is what they said. So, they sought to have him killed. Now, Rome could not have cared less, conversely, about a man claiming to be God. Remember that this is a people who worshipped hundreds of gods of their own, including, by the way, their Caesar. So, what would one more be? Pilate and Caesar, rather, were concerned with political uprisings like someone else claiming to be king. And the Sanhedrin knew this about them, and so they falsified the accusations made against Jesus and made sure that he appeared to be a real and present threat to Rome. It was the only way they were going to get this done. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered Pilate's question the same way that he answered Judas when he asked Jesus, is it I, Rabbi, regarding who would betray him? Do you remember at the Last Supper when Judas asked, is it I, Rabbi? In the questions that both Judas and Pilate asked Jesus, he gave a somewhat nuanced answer, and it was this, you have said so. You have said so. 
Is it I, Rabbi? You have said so. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. And replying this way to Judas in particular, Jesus was saying, yes, it's you who will betray me. And by the way, you know it. But there is something bigger behind all of this. It is all part of God's sovereign plan. And in replying the same way to Pilate, Jesus was saying, yes, I'm king, but not politically or militarily, as you might imagine. In fact, my kingdom is not of this world. Many charges were brought against Jesus. The Sanhedrin wanted something to stick, and they didn't care what it was. But Jesus, throughout it all, kept silent. A few weeks ago, Jonathan took us back to Isaiah 53, and he read these words from, John, from verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, verses like these remind us that who Jesus is and what he came to do had long been foretold by God and that each prophecy was to be fulfilled, even down to the smallest detail of how Jesus would respond to and interact with his accusers. Now, I think there are multiple reasons for Jesus' silence in these moments. But in Luke's account of this trial, there is one insight that I find particularly interesting and somewhat convicting. In verses 67 and 68 of Luke 22, the council again asked Jesus if he was the Christ, and he replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Do you know how often Jesus was asked to prove himself by those who would not believe even if he did? Do you know how often he was asked to prove himself by people that weren't going to believe either way? Do you know that I'm guilty of that as well? Do you know that you're guilty of that as well? Friends, has Jesus not shown himself to be God? Has he not shown himself to be good? Has he not always shown himself to be faithful? And still we find ourselves doubting and refusing and rejecting and going our own way, wanting to Jesus to jump through our hoops, treating him like a cosmic Santa Claus. Showing that neither our questions, our concerns, our doubts, nor our hearts are sincere in that moment. So ask yourself, if Jesus stood before me face to face and gave me a clear sign of his deity or a clear answer to my questions, would I believe? If you doubt that he's God, if you doubt that he's worthy of following, 
and he were to convince you face to face, would you believe it? If you've got a question for him and he were to answer it clearly, would you believe it? Would you accept it? Would you follow him anyway? And would you obey? Mark tells us that Jesus' silence at his trial amazed Pilate. Because who doesn't answer his accusers? Who doesn't defend oneself? Who doesn't speak up at the injustices done unto them? Who doesn't grovel when their life is on the line? My friends, in Jesus' silence, we see the innocent one stand in the place of our guilt. And we see our Creator on trial before His creation. It is unbelievable. Standing before the Sanhedrin and now Pilate, we see the judge become the defendant, not to bring judgment as is his right and his right alone, but to bear judgment for you and for me. That's what's going on here. And though he had done no wrong, he was willing to stand trial on behalf of we who have done wrong. How can anyone look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, oh, all religions are basically the same. How can anyone think that? What other God would do or has done such a thing? Who would enter into such an unfair and unmerited exchange? Well, I can answer both of those questions. No one. No other God would, could, or has done it. Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. Continuing in verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, Jonathan and I have tried to stay in Mark's gospel almost exclusively and limit how often we have used the other gospel accounts. We really wanted to kind of get Mark's point of view. But I'm actually going to use some of the other accounts here. Um, simply because this section of Scripture in particular, I don't think makes as much sense. We don't get as much visibility into it without the help of the other gospel accounts. It is in reading these other three gospels that we really learn of the extent of the predicament that Pilate found himself in. Because before Pilate stood an innocent man. Alongside an angry mob of influential religious leaders who were set on having this innocent man killed. 
If Pilate released Jesus, the Sanhedrin would have stirred up the crowds and a riot would have ensued. And Rome would not have been happy. But if Pilate put Jesus to death, he knew that he would be punishing an innocent man. Maybe the king of kings. Maybe God-man. A man that his wife had dreamed of and warned him about. But in putting Jesus to death, he would also be cementing a brighter political future for himself. Throughout all four of the Gospels, we find Pilate seeking to release Jesus, having said of him, I find no guilt in him. What evil has he done? Nothing deserving death has been done by him, and I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate even tried to push Jesus off on Herod so that he wouldn't have to deal with it to no avail. Friends, neither Herod nor Pilate, the rulers of this region, saw Jesus as guilty or as a threat. But the jealous Sanhedrin were going to keep the pressure on. They would accept nothing less. So, Pilate opted for taking advantage of a long-held tradition of pardoning a prisoner in honor of the Jewish Passover. He did this in hopes that the people would choose to release Jesus. The Sanhedrin clearly want him dead, but he's innocent. Surely the people are going to let him go instead of Barabbas, who is a well-known and famous murderer and insurrectionist. A true enemy of Rome. Essentially, Pilate wanted to do the right thing, but he was not willing to pay the price for it. And friends, as much as Pilate wishes it weren't so, and as much as we wish it weren't so, doing the right thing always involves personal sacrifice. Somebody is going to pay. But doing the right thing is always worth it in the end. Now we know precious little about Barabbas outside of his crimes, and outside of his ultimate release. But we do know that his name translates to mean son of the father. Bar is son, Abbas is father. Which indicates that his father may have been a religious teacher or a religious leader in Israel. And we also know that the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels ascribe to him another name, the name Jesus. Jesus Barabbas, which may be an indication as to why the crowd shouted the name Barabbas. You can't shout for Jesus if both of the prisoners are named such. Now, the religious leaders who desired Jesus' death stirred the crowds and encouraged them to demand that Barabbas be released and that Jesus be crucified, in spite of Pilate's attempts to cause them to choose otherwise. And upon the realization that the bloodthirsty and envious religious council had the crowd in their hands and not wanting to deal with an ensuing riot, Pilate relented and satisfied the yelling crowds. Releasing Barabbas 
who was guilty of insurrection and murder and sending Jesus, the true son of the true father, and innocent of all accusations to be flogged and crucified. The irony in this is thick. Now, Jerusalem was filled with those who worshiped Jesus with shouts of Hosanna earlier in the week, as well as those who demanded his death with shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And it is often assumed that the crowds must have just been fickle and simply turned on Jesus within a matter of days. But I actually don't think that that's the case. I don't think that that's the case. Very likely, the crowd that we saw on Palm Sunday was not the same crowd shouting for Jesus' crucifixion before Pilate. Jesus had his followers who worshipped him and were glad for his arrival into Jerusalem. And it was this crowd that the Sanhedrin feared. Do you remember how often we heard that the Sanhedrin was afraid of the crowds? They didn't do this because they were afraid of the crowds. Well, which crowds? The crowds that loved and worshipped Jesus. It was because of them that the religious leaders didn't kill Jesus themselves, and it is why they arrested him in secret at night. Would they have needed to go at night and do so in secret if everybody was on board? But the Sanhedrin had their followers too, remember. Followers who were ready to follow their lead in believing that Jesus was a threat to Israel and seeking his death over Barabbas. Here again, my friends, we see the dangers and the wickedness of self-righteous religion. Religion not rooted in the truth of Scripture and bent on man's power and position rather than God's rightful place of glory. Religion that seeks to glorify man over glorifying God is no religion at all. And the cries for Jesus' crucifixion is one more indictment of mankind's insatiable desire to be God and our willingness to crush anyone or anything who might threaten our own lordship. We would put God himself to death if he stood in our way demanding that he be God and we are not. So to satisfy the crowds, Mark tells us that Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged and to be crucified. I grew up watching the miniseries Jesus of Nazareth. Who's seen that? Yeah, about four of us. It's another one you should see. It's terrific. Actually, most Jesus movies, I think, stink. Uh, but there are a small handful of great ones. Jesus of Nazareth is one of the good ones. And much of what I imagined throughout the whole of my life about Jesus' scourging and his crucifixion came from Jesus of Nazareth until I saw the Passion of the Christ. The physical horrors Jesus experienced are likely far more accurate in the Passion of the Christ. I actually think it was worse than that. And there's nothing more horrifying in my mind than those scourging scenes. They seem endless. And the brutality and the intensity seems to pick up as it goes. 
there were a handful of times when I first saw it that I needed to look away. It was just too much. Prisoners who were scourged were struck with a flagellum, a whip consisting of a big wooden handle with several leather strands hanging from it. And a few inches from these leather strands, they tied iron balls or lead balls to do further damage to the body. And at the very ends of these whips were thorns or metal chips or sharp pieces of bone designed to lacerate the body in a most brutal and violent manner. Think of the weight upon which this flagellum is coming with those iron balls at the end and the sharp pieces of whatever at the very end. Scourging turned flesh into ribbons and cut deep into the muscle tissue and exposed bone. Oftentimes, killing a prisoner. And those who lived were left in agonizing pain, severely weakened due to shock and extreme blood loss. And my friends, it was in this state that Christ carried the cross. But the soldiers weren't done yet. Let's look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. On the heels of a brutal scourging, Jesus was once again beaten, humiliated, and mocked. For the entertainment of the entire battalion of cruel, brutal Roman soldiers, everybody got together for this. And he was dressed in a makeshift robe, crown, and scepter. The robe made of a purple-colored cloak, likely an old cape of one of the soldiers, purple to signify royalty. The crown was made of thorn bushes from nearby, pushed onto the already bloodied and bruised head of Jesus. And then a scepter was made of reeds and placed in his hands that they then used to beat him with. Now, this scene is deeply horrifying, and it is unspeakably sad. I love the color that Charles Spurgeon adds to this scene. He says, see that scarlet robe. It is a contemptuous imitation of the imperial purple that a king wears. See, above all, that crown upon his head. It has rubies in it, but the rubies are composed of his own blood, forced from his blessed temples by the cruel thorns. See, they pay homage, but the homage is their own filthy spittle which runs down his cheeks. They bow the knee before him, but it is only in mockery. They salute him with the cry, Hail, King of the Jews, but it is done in scorn. Was there ever grief like his? We just sang that. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? And finally, the soldiers stripped Jesus of the mock kingly garb, likely reopening the wounds from his scourging, and they dressed him in his own clothes and led him out to be crucified. 
In crucifixion, prisoners were marched along the streets of the city with a crossbar upon their shoulders on the way to the crucifixion site outside the city as a way of letting people know of Rome's power and to warn citizens not to defy their occupiers. It was visible for a purpose. My friends, in these verses, we see humanity at its worst. Conspiring, accusing, rejecting, scourging, mocking, beating, and spitting upon the Son of God. And of all days, we often forget about this, the day of Passover, where the Jews were to delight in God and make sacrifices to Him and commemorate His goodness in freeing them from Egypt. Instead, they conspired and cried out for the death of God's Son. The worst of humanity. But in these same verses, we also see God at His very best. We see God at His very best. Now, there is certainly human responsibility in Jesus' betrayal, his condemnation, and his death. And in a very real way, we all share that responsibility. Throwing punches, making accusations, spitting in his face, mocking him, driving nails into him. But do you know that ultimately it was God who purposed for Jesus to die? It was God who purposed for Jesus to die sending the true Passover lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And ultimately, it was Jesus who let these things happen to him. That's another reason that he was silent. He let these things happen to him so that sin would be done away with and that life eternal would come to those who believe. Jesus said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear it? Mankind, my friends, in his sinfulness, you and I in our sinfulness did all these things to the Son of God, but God had ordained that they would. God had ordained that we would. In John chapter 19, Pilate asked Jesus a question, and Jesus did not answer him. Picking up in verse 10 of John 19, we read, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Then Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Friends, nothing, nothing happens apart from God allowing it. And most importantly, 
when it came to his beloved son. In order to serve his eternal purposes for our salvation and for his glory, he let his son suffer and die. It is both an extraordinary mystery and an incredible truth. But as brutal as those last hours of Jesus' life were, and I tried to let you know how brutal they are, they were not what Jesus truly agonized over. As brutal as those last hours were, they were not truly what Jesus agonized over. And they did not represent the true horror of the cross. Do you realize, as you read through it, that the Gospels do not share many details surrounding the physical aspect of Jesus' suffering? The Bible uses nondescript words like beaten, scourged, and crucified. Well, who knows what that means? The only details that we have and the details that I just shared with you come from history. We know what happened because of what history told us, not because of what the Bible tells us. We don't get those details in the Bible. Do you know that approximately 30,000 people during Jesus' time and place experienced much of what Jesus did physically? That's how many people were scourged and crucified? Including, by the way, the two men to Jesus left and right. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel writers give more detail about Jesus being mocked and abandoned than they do his physical sufferings. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I don't think it is done to minimize Jesus' physical suffering, but rather to magnify the true horror of Jesus' passion. There was something worse. Horrors that we cannot depict in statues or in paintings or in film. Horrors that we actually sang about earlier. Do you remember? Many hands were ways to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The horror of the cross is the justice of the cross. And we will discuss at length this idea in the weeks to come, but, but know this, my friends. Know this. Jesus was forsaken so that we would always know fellowship with God. He was mocked so that we might be glorified with him. He was scourged and beaten so that we would be healed. He was condemned so that we could be set free. And he died so that we would only know eternal life in him. Like Barabbas, we are all guilty of insurrection, robbery, and murder. We have revolted time and time again against God and his kingdom. We have robbed him of the glory and honor that he is due. And we have put him to death in and through our sin. 
but there is good news. There is good news. Good news that is found in one half of the gospel and summed up in a simple phrase. We don't know if Barabbas said it, but we know that he could have in a very, very real sense. And it is a phrase that is eternally true for all who put their faith in Christ, and it is this. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Like Barabbas, Jesus stood in our place. And for those that believe it, for those that believe it, every sin has been judged in the person of his son, meaning our chains are gone and we have been set free. It happened physically with Barabbas and it happened spiritually with you and I. Every sin has been forgiven. Guilt and shame has been vanquished. No longer for you to hold. No longer for you to carry. And new life in Christ is ours, both now and forevermore, by the power of His indwelling Spirit. As Christians, we no longer identify as prisoners or as sinners. In Christ, we are righteous sons and daughters of the King. Righteous sons and daughters of the King. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is the message we get to scream from the mountaintops. So would you be reminded of it today? Would you be encouraged by it and live in the good of it? And if you have not yet believed it, if you have not yet believed it, let it be today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the power of the gospel of your Son just overwhelms us. What kind of love causes one to bear the shame of another though he has done no wrong? What kind of mercy withholds punishment from one's enemy though they are guilty? What kind of grace grants forgiveness to those who have not asked for it and life to those who do not deserve it? Only you, God. Only you. There is none like you, and we give you all the praise, thanksgiving, and worship that our bodies and minds and souls can muster today. God, would you see the intent of our offering and be pleased with it? Would you stir our hearts for the person of your son and his sacrifice? Give us eyes to see the full extent of his suffering on our behalf, and let us be moved to live for him as he lives in us in return. Help us to see in these passages that it is you who are the initiator and it is we who respond to what you have done. Help us, God, to know that we have done nothing to earn our salvation and therefore we can do nothing to lose it. Help us to rest in our new identity in Christ and his sufficiency on our behalf. Would you let us live in the freedom that his death, resurrection, and Holy Spirit provides and declare the good news of our risen king to a fallen world? We glorify you today, our God and Father, for the gift of your Son, and we praise you, Jesus, for being born to die and live again in us forever. We thank you, Spirit, for filling us with all that you are. 
transform our lives and the lives of those around us for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.